They don't trust judges. They don't trust courts. They don't trust law societies. They don't trust lawyers. Now, that's an overgeneralization, but I think there's a, a general failure of confidence because of the fact that for the people in the situation I'm describing, the system does not work and is not comprehensible. And so I think that's the broader problem that the law society finds itself in. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. So this episode is something that we have been planning for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And it deals with a topic that there is a lot of talk about at present, which is how lawyers discipline one another. In other words, the complaints process, and we have focused for this episode on the complaints process at the Law Society of Ontario. We're not picking on them particularly, but we have had a number of blogs written. Um, those of you who follow the blog will have seen Anne Rempel's blogs, three now, which we'll post on the podcast page, talking about the complaints process of the Law Society of Ontario and a lot of different critiques of how far the public really is represented in that process uh, and how much information we have so that we can see how the public and self-represented litigants who might bring a complaint forward actually fare in that complaints process. So we've been trying to set up a debate for some time now um, between Anne Rempel and Malcolm Mercer, who is the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario and in effect the prime minister we're going to call him the Prime Minister uh, of the Law Society of Ontario. Malcolm has been on the podcast with us before. He is a man of many parts. He's also an adjudicator with the Federal Immigration Review Board and a former director of Pro Bono Ontario and someone who has been very supportive of the mm -hmm. work of the project right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, we also recognize that Malcolm is sitting in a hot seat where there are many, many expectations from access to justice advocates within the profession and also criticisms such as those we're going to look at today from outside, from members of the public and self-represented litigants about how far the Law Society is prepared to really be transparent about serving the public interest. So Malcolm is debater one and debater two <laughs> is uh, the wonderful Anne Rempel, who, as Julie mentioned, has written several blog posts on this topic for us now. Anne actually now lives in Melbourne, Australia, and she has had previous experience as an SRL. Uh, she's been dealing with the self-regulatory complaint systems of both the healthcare and the financial systems, specifically regarding elder neglect and financial abuse concerns since 2012. Uh, she's also been raising similar issues with the LSO complaint system since 2015. So she's got a lot of experience in this area. So this is a very animated conversation. I think it's a constructive debate, uh, but I think you should keep listening. Here we go. Good morning, Malcolm in Toronto. Good evening, Anne in Melbourne, and thank you. Oh, it's actually morning here now. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> what time is it there, Anne? One o'clock. Oh my gosh! You, you oh get really gosh. used to this when you live on the other side of the world. <laughs> oh goodness, I'm so sorry, but thank you again. So, so let me jump right into this. Uh, the 
Law Society of Ontario's complaints process, how complaints are brought about licensees of the Law Society and how these address by the society has become a topic of growing debate. And there is dissatisfaction among some members of the public with the current system. And I know that the two of you have somewhat different views on those, what those problems are and how to fix them. And we're going to get a bit more deeply into that in a minute. But having talked with both of you uh, to, to, at some length, I also believe there are some basic agreements between you. To begin with, I think both of you see this as a system problem. That is a system that is struggling to adjust to change, the change being the enormous number of people who now handle their legal cases alone. However, I think each of you may have some different ideas about the consequences of those system problems. In other words, what it means to the public if they don't see the system working to meet their concerns. So, Anne, can I begin with you here? Okay. I think the public sees the Law Society complaint system as something which is stacked against them. Uh, they're frustrated by the lack of action, the lack of information, and the fact that this is continuing results in them demanding more radical changes, greater push to just say eliminate self-regulation of complaints altogether. But I think another important aspect to recognize in that is that there's always going to be an interconnected issue of attribution bias. And that's just a fundamental tendency that we all have when we're interpreting negative behaviors to favor groups which are similar to ourselves and attribute those negative actions to situational factors which are beyond an individual's control. But when we're dealing with an outsider, we attribute it to the person's disposition or their intentions. And that means that investigators, you know, they'll have an attribution bias. It's not the same thing as being corrupt. Um, if anything, quite honestly, the people who work in this sort of area are probably more public-minded than the average lawyer, but they're still going to um, more favorably assess lawyers because that's their world experience. Right. They haven't been in the situation of the public, uh, and in many cases, the things that are done to the public wouldn't be done if they were a lawyer because they'd be more than aware that they could be reported for a breach. I mean, Malcolm raised that in an article he wrote uh, in November last year. Now, it's also fair to say that that's going to be true for the public as well. They'll yeah. favor public complaints. So I agree that part of what is going on here is that things have changed. We, until probably a couple of decades ago, we had a system where the courts and the law society organized their approaches premised on an adversarial system where both sides were represented. Now, I'm not sure how much that was always true, but uh, it seems to have been the, uh, the foundational principle upon which our systems are based. We clearly have a problem, particularly in family law, but also in civil matters where individuals can't afford representation or choose not to have representation. The system isn't designed to react to that. And where I agree is that the frustration with that system, and it's understandable frustration because it's hard to navigate, uh, too complicated to navigate, the way I describe it is too fair to be afforded. People then have distrust for everything. They, my perception is that what you described as the public, but let me talk about it as people representing themselves in the adversarial process because the public's broader, than, I think, than you're describing. They don't trust judges, they don't trust courts, they don't trust law societies, they don't trust lawyers. Now, that's an overgeneralization, but I think there's a, 
a general failure of confidence because of the fact that for the people in the situation I'm describing, the system does not work and is not comprehensible. And so I think that's the broader problem that the law society finds itself in. You know, I accept Anne's proposition that people see the see things through their own experience. I suppose mm. that could be called attribution bias. And what I've just described, I think, is the attribution bias on the other side. When you see the world as hostile, complicated, and again you, you see everything that way. As for the people who work in the law society, most of them on the complaint side don't come from the world that you think they come from. They're lawyers, and so they're trained that way. They're also forensic accountants. But they've, for the most part, dedicated their lives to this work, and uh, I'll stack them up against anybody. Uh, they'll have their biases, of course, but, uh, and as and, you know, Anne effectively said this, they are genuinely public-spirited. Right. Like all of us, they'll have blind right. spots. Let's drill down a bit more then, shall we, because you're both talking about this crisis of confidence, and I think that we can all agree that there is a crisis of confidence here amongst those who are not lawyers who come to the courts alone. So let's let's think about some of the more specific issues that, that have been raised. So the Code of Conduct treats lawyers and members of the public coming, you know, as people who've represented themselves, that is, uh, in different ways. So, for example, some of the rules apply explicitly to all members of the public, anybody coming forward with a complaint, and include, including the lawyer's duty of courtesy and good faith, for example, while others only apply to lawyers and their clients, for example, the rules against using a recording device without permission. Now, this seems a little odd since recording without permission would appear to be a violation of that duty of good faith. And another example that's been pointed out to me many times is the difference in the information that is provided to lawyers about a complaint from a member of the public, a self-represented litigant, and they, they are given everything in the complaint compared to the information provided to a non-lawyer public complainers. I don't like to use the word non-lawyer, but we're talking about someone who's represented themselves, uh, who are given no part of the lawyer's response. Now, the Complaints Resolution Commissioner has pointed out some of these disparities, but they're not yet addressed. And this disparity of standards between members of the law society and the public in the complaints process seems at least on its face to be unfair and inappropriate. So, what could be done about this? And Anne, I'm going to ask you first and then ask Malcolm. Okay, I mean, I'm coming from the public side, so obviously my bias is in that yeah. direction. But I find it intrinsically unfair. The first in the rule in the Section 7 that says, 7.2, it says, a lawyer shall be courteous, civil, and act in good faith with all persons with whom they have dealings. I mean, that to me seems to be the sweeping overarching requirement and yet somehow there's a little bit carved out that says, oh, but you don't have to do that with regard to recording, because I think it should be even. And again, with the Complaints Resolution Commissioner's comments, I mean, he's, in his 2017 report, he comments it's a fundamental principle that claimants should be entitled to receive and respond to a licensee's response to the complaint. And at the moment, they, they do not get that information. They do not. I mean, he allowed right. for certain redactions and confidentiality. But right. if anything, since that time period, the responses, and, and he comments in, his, in the same report, that the responses to closing letters are getting shorter and providing less information rather than going the other way. And it's just a, it's a little bit of a drip, drip, drip every time there seems to be something which, you know, uh, the public and the lawyers are treated differently. From the public's point of view, it 
looks like the lawyers are getting the better deal. And mm. I'd be quite happy to change change sides on this. Malcolm, do you want to jump in here? I think there is a fundamental and a really important difference between people who are representing themselves in the process, which is what I think we're talking about, mm-hmm. and the public generally. You know, the public can be comprised of people who read stuff in the, uh, the newspapers. They can be people who are outraged by somebody becoming a lawyer, given their history. They can be someone who is related to a client who's unhappy. They could be clients. The rules uh, of professional conduct are about, uh, I'd describe it as role morality or role ethics, and they're designed to make a system work. They don't always do it properly, but they that's their goal. I do not accept that a lawyer should have the same duties in respect of all of the member of members of the public, whatever their role is in the context. So let me tease that out a bit. You can't record conversations rule refers to the lawyer to lawyers and clients. I think that's because of the paradigm that historically you either had your client or the lawyer on the other side. What it does not do, and I think it ought to do personally, is describe not just the lawyer on the other side, but where the other side isn't represented, the person on the other side. But I'd be strongly against a general prohibition against recording because it would compromise what lawyers properly do in the system. For example, defense counsel have to be able to investigate cases, civil uh, litigation counsel have to be investigate, able to investigate cases. So I think you need to be really precise about this. Where a client complains about a lawyer, there is no confidentiality to protect. The client uh, has a duty of candor from the lawyer. There's no policy reason uh, why the client can't know that which is cloaked by confidentiality and solicitor-client privilege. Where the member of the public that we're talking about is the adverse party. There are all kinds of problems about disclosure, solicitor-client privilege, litigation privilege, confidentiality, the fact that by definition they are in an adversarial process with the other side. The courts have made absolutely clear that solicitor-client privilege is to be lifted only to the extent absolutely necessary. It's a very sweeping prohibition. You can't even find out what questions were asked, so you don't even know if your case has been put forward correctly because you can't find out what questions they ask. Look, I'm I'm not suggesting it isn't difficult. I understand entirely why somebody complaining about the lawyer on the other side, which is what we're talking about here, would be frustrated that they can't lift the, the veil to understand how that lawyer has been investigated. But the reason so that what answers is, they've made, given. that's protecting the client on the other side and more generally the system of, of legal representation and the belief that clients need to be able to tell their deepest, darkest secrets to their, their lawyers without third parties getting involved in that. Can I kind of just put it this way to you, Malcolm, that if there are arguments for specific things that need to be different about the ways in which lawyers carry out their, their duties, because as you say, a solicitor client privilege, would you accept the general premise that having rules of professional conduct, which despite the fact that lawyers owe a general duty to everybody to use courtesy and good faith, that there should not be differential application depending upon whether you're coming forward with a complaint as a lawyer's client 
or as somebody who's representing themselves. Well, I don't know what you mean by that, because in some respects, uh, there has to be differential investigation. But is there a differential right. duty of courtesy and good faith? Uh, I think there actually is, because I think a lawyer owes much greater duty to their own client than they do to the other side. They're very different duties owed. So you wouldn't see the duty of courtesy and good faith applying in the same way to somebody on the other side representing themselves as it would to your own client. I, I find that a little hard to understand. Well, I guess it depends what you think, the, what the duty of good faith and courtesy means. We, It's absolutely clear that a lawyer owes a duty of commitment, a fiduciary obligation, uh, duties of confidentiality to their own clients that they don't owe to the other side. Okay, well, let me move on to another question because um, – I, you know, we, unfortunately, we have to, we have uh, some limits on time here, and this is the question of transparency around the publication of data uh, about the complaints process, and this has really been the focus of Anne's blogs for the Access Revolution blog, which we'll be posting along on the post podcast page. So this is about how much do we know, and how much more might we know about the work that's being done in the complaints process. Uh, we don't at the moment have um, a separation of complaints in terms of publicly available data between those that are brought by lawyers and the law society itself, who obviously is sometimes the complainant, and those who are bought, brought by other people. And Anne's research suggests that, for example, only 10% of the cases that reach the tribunal level are from members of the public or people outside of the profession or the society. We also don't know how many cases are settled before an investigation, which then puts them into the oversight process by the Complaints Resolution Commissioner. And we don't know, in other words, how many complaints coming from members of the public are dismissed at that point. So, Anne, could you say a little bit about why you see this information as important? Then, obviously, I'm going to ask you, Malcolm, if it's possible to um, differentiate this information when the public reporting is, is done. Well, I think, basically, you need to have information to have faith in the system. As Malcolm said, there's a general distrust of things. And when there's just a, a blank wall, you can't find anything out, it just increases that distrust. You know, the days of being told words of a former Queensland Premier, don't you worry about that, uh, those are gone. People are worried. They want to know how long a complaint takes to be processed, uh, how how they're resolved, what's the satisfaction rate for the complainants. Um, and I think it's also extremely concerning that in a time period where people are pushing for this, the amount of external oversight of the process has actually decreased as a result of the recent restructures of the process. Um, in 2017, the uh, Complaints Resolution Commissioner said that under the a new structure, the complaints eligible for review dropped from half in 2015 to less than a quarter in 2017, sorry, 2017. And that significant decrease, I mean, it could just reflect that more complaints are being resolved at an early stage. And that would be a fabulous thing. But it would but, be nice to have that information more clearly. It would be nice to have that information. Because right. the other alternative is that the complaints are closed to the satisfaction of the law society, but not to that of the complainants. And now there's no ability to get that reviewed. What you're looking for, I think, is a breakdown uh, between uh, people representing themselves and clients and others. It's absolutely impossible to be against transparency. Uh, <laughs> the 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 issue is what is the cost of doing it given the systems which currently exist and 
you know, one of the realities, uh, and Anne, you may think we take too long to deal with it, is that we had difficulties two and three years ago with respect to the volumes uh, being processed, and uh, that had an effect at the intake stage. It meant that matters were being dealt with uh, prior to formal investigation, and it had the consequence that you describe, which is that it took matters out of the scrutiny of the uh, out of scrutiny that uh, were before. I think that's a problem. I think we need to address that. I agree with you. Um, the difficulty, and it's just a practical difficulty, is that the early culling of complaints distinguish between those which are simply not the business of the law society and those which ought to be considered for investigation. It doesn't make sense to have scrutiny on those, but if we're closing too many uh, before the formal investigation, that's a problem because scrutiny isn't there. So I'm agreeing with that. Uh, as to further data, my worry, frankly, is that there's a tension in how you use your resources. There's a tension around writing letters every six months. There's a tension around creating new systems to gather data and report data. When I worry that what our main resource ought to be dedicated to is trying to get the system to process complaints, investigations in a timely way, and I worry about distraction from that. But it well, let, let me ask you this, Malcolm, because we are almost out of time here. But I, I'd like to ask you both perhaps to say something in closing about what you see as the top priority to fix and how this might be done. So Malcolm, do you, do you wanna, I don't know whether the timeliness is, is your top priority or is it something else, but do you, no, do you that, want to that begin? Is, that is, yeah, that is my top priority. I think that uh, what matters most to people is to have a timely uh, resolution of their complaint. That's absolutely true for complainants. It's absolutely true for lawyers and paralegals. Uh, timeliness matters most. What I think the second thing, given the increase in numbers of people representing themselves is I think the Law Society should do a better job of explaining what it can do and should do in the process and what other resources are available uh, because I think there's lots of uh, confusion about the legitimate role of the Law Society as regulator of legal services as compared to the courts in running the court system. Anne, would you like to say something about your top priority? I guess my top priority isn't a specific legal issue, but it's the issue of public distrust. And I think the, uh, the Law Society needs to build some bridges on that. It needs to provide some evidence of responsiveness because uh, while people like their um, complaints solved in a timely manner, they don't like it solved in a timely manner which says, uh, we've looked at this and there's nothing to see. Uh, no, you can't know the questions. No, you can't know the reasons, which is what a lot of it comes down to. Some of these are structural. They're difficult. Malcolm's thrown up the, the sorts of issues they've got to go through, but it mm. also happens even with the things where there isn't a problem. I mean, you've asked about how many people are self-represented litigants. That data's there. Mm. The complaints form asks you, are you represented? It asks you, are you dealing with an opposing lawyer? People who aren't represented and dealing with an opposing, opposing, complaining about an opposing lawyer, they're self-represented litigants. Right, and we could pull so that data out. You could put that data out with the next annual report on things. And certainly yeah, assuming you've got a data system which actually tracks that and a database that you could accumulate information generally with, I don't know that that's true. One of the other ones would be how many complaints are of the 10% percent 
which aren't resolved in 18 months, how many of those are public ones? <laughs> you know, is that where the people end up as opposed to uh, complaints by the law society and lawyers? It's a level of suspicion and distrust that's there. And those that information is not confidential or privileged. A, a gesture in, in providing information on a, you know, one of those would be something which would you know, be a positive step because you do quite legitimately argue that some of the other things are difficult and take time. Well, I want to bring this to a close now by acknowledging that both of you, I think, I, this is very clear, really want the system to work as well as possible. And I really appreciate um, everything that you have said, Malcolm, and Anne, I really appreciate your points, and I hope very much that this will be the uh, start of, an, of a continuing debate where I think that we can all see that the system has to adjust in some way, but some of these adjustments are difficult and there will be, I'm sure, a lot of continuing discussion. So thank you both very much indeed for your time this morning. Okay, thank you, thank Julie. You. We decided that a conversation this interesting and controversial really required a review in our outro from both a self-represented litigant, a member of the public, and also somebody inside the legal profession. So we turn to our two good friends, Rob Harvey and Randy Drusen. Rob Harvey is the chair of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project Advisory Board. He's a family practitioner in Alberta, and he has also been involved as a volunteer in the Law Society of Alberta's discipline process. Randy Drusen is a self-represented litigant, formally. She is a journalist, and she is part of our blog steering group. And as such, Randy has been reviewing and contributing to blogs. And she and Rob have actually been writing a blog together in which they have a conversation from their two different perspectives. So we asked them to listen to Anna Malcolm's conversation and to record some of their reactions to that. So let's listen to their conversation now. So Rob and Randy, thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon and you have agreed from your somewhat different perspectives to give us some comments on what you heard Anna Malcolm discussing in their conversation about the discipline system in Ontario. And I should just note that Rob, you are a practitioner in Alberta, so your point of reference is going to be Alberta, not Ontario. So let's just kick off by asking you. Uh, could you each say something about what you see as the biggest problem with the current discipline system in its broad brush? In my opinion, the biggest problem is, and it was sort of hit at in the conversation between Malcolm and Anne, I feel that the legal community is somewhat of a gated community and that mm. members of the public, including self-represented litigants, are not allowed access to that community, including everything that transpires behind the gates, which obviously pertains to disciplinary measures. So I feel that the lack of transparency you were discussing, or they were discussing, mm -hmm. points to a bigger issue, which is just the fact that there is something of a gated community, or a moat, you want to put it that way, and we're just not, we're just not allowed access. That's from my perspective as someone who's been in the legal system as an outsider, so to speak. 
And Randy, you say that despite the fact that you can make a complaint, <clears throat> but you don't feel that the response that you're getting or the information you're getting really gives you confidence. Is, is that what you're saying? It still yeah, feels I have, secret? I have actually made several complaints during my litigation. I did make at least two, possibly three complaints to the Law Society of Ontario, and I really wasn't informed at all of what was going on, and I didn't, wasn't really given any recourse, you know, to find out until the process was over. And at that point, right. my only option was to go to the Complaints Resolution Commissioner, which I did. Right. So, Rob, from my perspective, from my response to, to Randy, I think that work can be done. I think Malcolm acknowledged that in being somewhat more transparent. My experience in Alberta, I've been a resolution uh, adjudicator. My experience has been here that they are reasonably transparent, that complainants are largely responded to in a timely way with a reasonable amount of detail as to what's happening and why. And so I don't think transparency, as Malcolm indicated, should ever be argued against. I think, though, you know, touching on Malcolm's initial comments, there's a much larger concern, and the discipline process simply becomes a scapegoat for that concern, which is the system doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for people. It works maybe okay for lawyers and judges, but what happens is I think when people get so frustrated with their inability to navigate in an obtuse system, they start looking for reasons to be angry, and the easiest access point, because you can't reasonably complain about judges in this country, your best access point are law societies. So let's make some complaints. Transparency is important, and if, if Ontario is not as transparent as they could be, that is a concern. But I think a bigger concern is if people are fed up and frustrated with a broad justice system that is uh, broken and perhaps outdated. But this is obviously a little bit of a circle here because people frustrated, they make a complaint, then they get into a discipline system which may be um, heavier volume in Ontario than it is in Alberta. It does re result, we do know, in, in some delays for people actually getting recourse. So isn't there a connection between having a discipline model that, for example, might allow a complaint such as Randy referred to that could be made while a proceeding is in progress and something that would really give the public confidence that there is some recourse to what they feel is unfair about navigating the justice system? Rob? Well, I think, I think the complainant, if there's not some sanction, is most often not going to be fully satisfied anyway. So my concern, there are two issues. One is, does the complainant feel like they've been addressed? And then the other issue is broader than that, is does the public feel like the profession is responsible? Responsive, accountable? yeah. And so there's two kind of different issues. And they relate, but I don't think they're fully compatible. I think the law societies could do a much better job, for example, of explaining what they do and how they do it. Every mm -hmm. hearing I've ever been on has had a public representative, a non-lawyer representative, and they mm -hmm. have significant input into decisions on disciplinary hearings, and quite frequently, they're the least harsh participant in terms of sanctions, but we don't express that very well. Law societies are so concerned about blowing their own horn 
that they don't really engage the public and say, this is what's going on and this is how we do it. So I think, you know, that's a big part of the problem. Randy, do you think that a public representative would be, there is no public representative in the uh, Ontario process at, at, the, at that hearings level. Do you think that that would make a difference? And what do you think about what Rob said that if people felt that they were being responded to more generally, maybe they would have fewer complaints? I think so. I think a big part of the frustration for me as a self-represented litigant and for other people who have been in the same boat is that you just don't feel like you're being heard. Mm. You know, and I think that's a huge frustration. And you experience that frustration in the courtroom and then it's compounded when you turn to the law society to, you know, with a grievance and you feel like they're listening even less than a judge might be. But there's also something else that <clears throat> Rob said that I think hints at a broader subject, and that is he was saying, as you said, Having someone there, you know, making decisions about possible disciplinary actions was helpful. And I think, absolutely, I'll give you an example that I actually sat with the Complaints Resolution Commissioner. Of course, as Rob probably has guessed, I wasn't happy with the outcome, which goes without saying. But the point I'm trying to make is, if there was a member of the public there, I think my frustration would have been less because I would mm. feel... Here I am complaining about a lawyer to someone who is or was a lawyer, and I would like someone who's not to sit, mm. as it, to be there, someone with an outsider's perspective, and really hear what I'm saying. You know, and also, I don't want to go on too long about this, but I will tell you that a few months later, I saw that very complaint resolution commissioner at a holiday party that was attended 90% of the attendees' lawyers. So I thought this represents an inherent problem, you know, when you're asking someone to pass judgment on people that they socialize with, go to school with, you know, like it's a problem. You need an outsider. You need outsiders involved. So just as a final question, what do you both feel, because I think you have different approach to this, about the principle of a profession being primarily responsible for well, in fact, solely responsible for disciplining and investigating itself, because this obviously goes to the heart of self-regulation. We know that there have been you know, many public complaints about organizations that have a system for complaints that is managed internally. You know, police and law enforcement are, are another example of this. So what do you think about that as a principle? I feel that it's really, really essential to have outsiders involved in every step of the process. I'm not saying a majority of the people making decisions should be outsiders, but I feel like there should be a substantial representation of people who are not in the legal profession, but are educated about the legal profession and can make informed decisions and ask intelligent questions. And I think this alone would go a long way to improving the credibility of law society and the opinion of the public and definitely self-represented litigants. So I think you're saying, Randy, that you need people who understand the practice of law right. making judgments around what is and what isn't proper practice, but simply right. having somebody who came to this with their head in a different place would give people more confidence exactly. that it would be a fair process. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get you in to respond to this. I would agree with that.
think, you know, again, I think the complaints process is a bit of a, a red herring to a larger issue, but as far as the complaints process goes, um, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that to to look to an alternate source of, of oversight, particularly government, is a huge mistake. Government and people have brought us residential schools and people have brought us internment camps. These are not people to be trusted necessarily. And lawyers as a group are are really the bastion against oppression by government. But that being said, I like Anne's comments about attribution bias. I think it's very valid. And then in the same as we do diversity training at law societies and within our profession, teachers could certainly be more attuned to the concept of attribution bias in the sense of you're seeing things from the perspective of what it feels like to be a lawyer. Have you spent any time trying to stand in the shoes of, mm -hmm. of a, a client or a self-representative self yeah. um, to understand so that you can then respond to them from their own perspective to some degree? So I could say to Randy, you know what, I'm anticipating your feelings, if I hear you properly, like mm -hmm. this, and if mm -hmm. it's true and it's sincere, then at least she has the sense of at least they understand. Even if exactly. they don't do at what I want them to do, they're acknowledging that I'm not crazy or I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I'm yeah. something different. And I, so can I say one last thing? And I'm not yes, going to please. About this. Go, go ahead. Um, the way I described it to my own lawyer when I'm trying, like, at, as you know, at various points in my process, I was represented. At one point, I was represented. Another point, I wasn't. Then I was. It was very complicated. But at one point, I had a lawyer who was very good. And the way I described to him how I felt as a self-represented litigant would say, okay, I'm a journalist. How would you feel if one day I sat you at a desk in the newsroom, told you there was breaking news, and asked you to get it on air in five minutes and didn't tell you how? How would you feel in that situation? Yeah, because that's exactly yeah. how I feel when I walk into a courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Randy, and thank you, Rob. And, you know, I would just want to put on the record that um, despite some very threatening, um, you know, starting noises when we were still discussing <laughs> the two of you doing this, you actually have managed to agree on a couple of things. So this takes the conversation further. And well, thank Julie, you both very much. Well, I am to be agreeable, but I had no choice. But Rob was unreasonably reasonable, so I had no choice. Thank you for being reasonably reasonable, both of you. Take care. Thank you. You take care, Bye. too. Bye-bye. Bye. In Other News. Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. As I mentioned in our segment last episode, there has been a lot happening in the world of access to justice since the end of Season 4. For our first story, we're sharing a report from October titled Investing in Justice, a literature review in support of the case for improved access. The report was released by the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice. The in-depth report offers case studies on legal aid funding in Australia, England, and Wales, as well as the use of paralegal services in South Africa and social investments in Bangladesh. It also examines investments in justice within the Canadian context. On average, Every dollar spent on justice yields a return of between $9 and $16. Facilitating access to justice programs and services for low- and middle-income earners results in lower court costs, fewer evictions, and lower unemployment rates, which reduces the demand for government services, helps to keep families safe and together, and reaps other benefits. 
this report is a must-read for anyone interested in civil justice reform. We've linked to both a short article by one of the co-authors, Lisa Moore, and the full report. Next up, also related to the idea of investing in justice, our story is about the Right Honorable Beverly McLaughlin Access to Justice Fund. Former Chief Justice McLaughlin was Canada's longest-serving Supreme Court Chief Justice, and she has said she wished to continue to push for improved access to justice for everyone in Canada. The Canadian government has given a one-time grant of $5 million to the fund, and the fund has also received a lot of support from the Federation of Law Societies of Canada and several major law firms. Similarly, there was also an announcement by the Law Foundation of Ontario that they distributed more than $700,000 in grants to fund projects under the Measuring Impacts and Progress Initiative, which aims to utilize research on data collection and access to justice in order to improve the Ontario justice system. Our third update falls under the broad topic of access to justice and class actions. We've talked about class actions before, particularly about the role that they can play in promoting access to justice. To assist in this function, the University of Windsor Faculty of Law has opened the first ever class action clinic, which is meant to assist individual class members and members of the public navigate the system. The clinic isn't looking to start class action lawsuits, but rather to help class members understand their rights and navigate the legal proceedings where thousands of people may be eligible for compensation. Class action members are often called absent clients, as they don't have the traditional lawyer-client relationship. At the same time, however, there's other news about class actions specifically in Ontario. Ontario is considering a proposal to adopt US-style class action certification tests in Ontario that may make it harder for plaintiffs to move forward with class actions through Bill 161. We've linked to articles about both the new clinic and the proposed change for you to learn more. For our last announcement, another update from NSRLP. In case you missed it, we recently published our intake report for 2018 and 2019. This intake report builds on the original research published in 2013 by Dr. Julie McFarlane, Order of Canada. Since 2013, SRLs have continued to contact the NSRLP, wanting to share their experiences. The team decided to develop an intake form in SurveyMonkey in order to continue to collect information from SRLs across Canada. This data collection has been published in semi-regular reports, and our latest intake report presents data from 173 respondents. The report is accompanied by a blog post, including an overview, noting points like general demographics, where 63% of respondents were over the age of 50, or high rates of college or university-level education, or that 45% of respondents had incomes below $30,000. The report also notes that fewer respondents this time around received pro bono services or used mediation services, and low numbers of SRLs received support from Mackenzie Friends. Be sure to check out the full report, and for any SRLs listening in, make sure that you fill out that intake form. And with that, we're mostly caught up to the present day for In Other News. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us for our next episode with Orlando Da Silva discussing the vital topic of mental health.